Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. This episode is brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute's Climate Judiciary Project, a first-of-its-kind effort that provides judges with reliable, authoritative, and trustworthy education on climate science, the impacts of climate change, and the ways climate science is arising in the law. Today, I will be speaking with the Climate Judiciary Project Science Fellow, John Darty, about scientific consensus reports and what they might reveal on questions related to climate change. John is an interdisciplinary geoscientist whose work aims to bridge the gaps between science, law, and society by educating judges in climate science. Before joining ELI, John earned a PhD in Earth Sciences from the University of Hong Kong and an MS in Environmental Science at American University. Scientists have established consensus that climate change is real, human-caused, and a force of massive consequence to societies and the planet. How exactly did they come to this consensus, and what does that even mean? Our discussion today will explore the process of establishing scientific fact through consensus and point to some of the highly respected scientific bodies that have produced consensus reports on climate change. When the scientific community deems scientific findings to be sound, using specific procedures and their own expert judgment, the wider public and government officials have reason to view them with confidence. John, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about what it means to have consensus in the scientific community? At the individual level, the scientific community advances knowledge by conducting studies and publishing the findings of those studies in peer-reviewed journals. However, one individual study arriving at a particular conclusion does not make that conclusion a scientific fact. But when you have multiple independent, high-quality studies that arrive at the same conclusion over and over again, ideally using different methods and coming out of different research groups, the scientific community gains confidence in that conclusion. Scientific consensus arises when confidence in a finding is so high that virtually all of the relevant expert scientific community agrees on it and accepts it as fact. Now, that doesn't mean that every scientist in the world must agree. You can always find a handful of individuals that will argue against scientific consensus, but rather that as a whole, the relevant scientific community and the professional expert bodies have come to accept the finding as fact. Thanks, John. That's really helpful understanding. So now that we've defined scientific consensus and discussed how it emerges, I'm wondering specifically about consensus in the context of climate science. What is the process of coming to consensus in the climate science field? So the Global Scientific Authority for Establishing Consensus in Climate Science is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. First established in 1988 by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program, 
the IPCC is really the official UN body that is tasked with regularly reviewing the full breadth of scientific literature on the physical basis of climate change, its impacts, and society's options for reducing climate risk through climate mitigation and adaptation. With 195 member countries and hundreds of scientists that author these regular assessment reports and thousands more that serve as expert reviewers for specific chapters, the IPCC is the world's most massive undertaking for establishing where there is consensus in climate science. Its first assessment report came out in 1990 and concluded that human activity was indeed responsible for increasing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and therefore also responsible for contributing to the increase in mean temperature of the surface of the planet. Since then, as climate science has been refined over the last 30 plus years, the IPCC has produced five additional assessment reports and several other reports dedicated to special climate topics. In its most recent sixth assessment report, which was released between 2021 and 2023, the IPCC concluded that, quote, human activities, principally through emissions of greenhouse gases, have unequivocally caused global warming, with global surface temperatures reaching 1.1 degrees Celsius above 1850 to 1900 levels in 2011 through 2020. It continues that, quote, Human-caused climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. This has led to widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people. In addition to the publication of the first IPCC report, 1990 is also the year that the U.S. Global Change Research Program, or USGCRP, was established by an act of Congress which is a consortium of U.S. federal agencies tasked with synthesizing trends in global change science and how those trends specifically impact the United States. This synthesis comes in the form of what is now called the National Climate Assessment, which is updated not less frequently than once every four years, and it is peer-reviewed by the National Academies of Sciences. And the fifth one actually just came out in November of 2023. Coordinated by scientists from 15 different federal agencies like NASA, the Department of Defense, and the Smithsonian Institution, this report is really a deep dive into the various ways in which climate change is unfolding across the United States and how scientists anticipate that it will continue to do so over the coming decades. Like the IPCC's efforts, the USGCRP evaluates the body of scientific evidence around climate change and its impacts, and it has similarly concluded that, quote, the evidence for warming across multiple aspects of the Earth system is incontrovertible, and the science is unequivocal that increases in atmospheric greenhouse gases are driving many observed trends and changes. The fifth National Climate Assessment further notes, quote, the more the planet warms, the greater the impacts. Without rapid and deep reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions from human activities, the risks of accelerating sea level rise, intensifying extreme weather, and other harmful climate impacts will continue to grow. Each additional increment of warming is expected to lead to more damage and greater economic losses compared to previous increments of warming, while the risk of catastrophic or unforeseen consequences also increases. Various other professional scientific associations of the United States, such as the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, the U.S. National Academies, the American Geophysical Union, 
and the American Meteorological Society, as well as highly respected professional societies from other countries like the United Kingdom's Royal Society, have all arrived at similar conclusions through independent investigations of the scientific literature on climate change. So on the basics of climate change, its causes and its general impacts, we really have a consensus of consensuses. Tell me more about the fifth national climate assessment. Is there anything about the report that particularly stuck out to you? Well, the National Climate Assessment is always a fascinating report for so many different scientific reasons. But, you know, we at the Environmental Law Institute think a lot about how science interacts with law and policy. And so I was really excited to see that the Fifth National Climate Assessment included, for the first time, a chapter devoted to social systems and climate justice. The report notes that social systems, including things like governance, laws, and social norms, bears responsibility for the increase in greenhouse gas emissions causing climate change. So the report continues to address climate change also means grappling with how we can, as ELI so nicely puts it, make laws work for people, places, and the planet. And the report goes into a few examples of what just climate governance might look like, including, for example, by including communities at the forefront of climate and socioeconomic risks in decision-making processes around mitigation and adaptation. What's also really interesting to me about this chapter is that it illustrates how far the field of social science research on climate change has come, which I feel can sometimes take a backseat to the abundance of advances in the physical science. But we know, thanks to social science, that the ways in which people understand and experience climate change can be largely shaped by social and demographic factors, according to the report. So for those of us who work in climate education and wish to advance climate literacy, we really ought to be thinking about these factors as we attempt to reach different audiences. That's really great to hear, John, that the most recent assessment is helping to bridge the gap between the scientific community and governance. So taking a step back, what specifically has the scientific community come to consensus on when it comes to climate science? And are there still disagreements in the field? In the broadest possible terms, the scientific consensus on climate science is that climate change is real, it's caused by human activity, and that it has mostly bad consequences for society and ecosystems. But, and this is important, that it isn't too late to avoid the worst impacts of climate change if we work toward reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Like any scientific field, there are always disagreements on the cutting edge. In climate science, an example of this is extreme event attribution, the area of research that identifies whether links can be made between climate change and extreme weather events. For example, you have a powerful flood along the southeastern coast of the U.S. Event attribution research might ask the question, did climate change contribute to that flood, for example, by increased sea level and intensifying precipitation? Or, if climate change did increase flooding, can we tease out by just how much? The answer to those questions can depend on the methodology that climate scientists use, and so you can get a range of possible answers. Thanks, John. So how do these disagreements among individual studies or scientific perspectives get resolved in preparing consensus reports? Scientific findings in both the National Climate Assessment and the IPCC reports are accompanied by likelihood and confidence statements. I think the best plain language explanation of these concepts comes from Alison Crimmins, who directed the Fifth National Climate Assessment, and she explained it like this. 
You know when you buy something on Amazon and you look at the reviews and see an average rating of 4.5 or 5 stars for a product? That represents high likelihood of that product being good. But when you see that the product only has two reviews, that represents low confidence. The most understood concepts in climate science have both high likelihood and high confidence. To get into slightly more of the technical details here, likelihood statements are calibrated to statistical probabilities. For example, if a finding is said to have a likelihood of virtually certain, this would indicate that the finding has between 99 and 100% chance of being true, according to all of the available scientific evidence. By contrast, confidence is an indicator of the quality and amount of the evidence. For example, very high confidence would indicate that the scientific finding is supported by multiple, independent, high-quality lines of evidence, and it is based on theory that is understood robustly by the scientific community. If there is disagreement among individual studies or competing schools of scientific thought, one might expect to see low confidence or medium confidence. The combination of likelihood and confidence statements gives the reader of these reports a sense of how much agreement, or not, exists for a particular finding in climate science. I love the Amazon review anecdote. That's really helpful. So speaking of IPCC reports, it sounds like these are carefully vetted and comprehensive. Are there any downsides to relying exclusively on the IPCC for information related to climate change and climate science? The IPCC assessment report is a behemoth of an undertaking, and they're typically released every six to eight years. However, climate science is a fast-moving field with many important advances that occur in between the publication of IPCC reports. So they're good and authoritative at the time of publication, but their slow-moving nature can make them somewhat dated later on. In addition, the language of consensus reports could come across as overly conservative in terms of how they report their findings, for example, just because an outcome is deemed to be, quote, very unlikely by IPCC, meaning that it has less than 10% chance of being true, doesn't mean necessarily that that outcome won't happen. Particularly for climate outcomes that are low likelihood, but that would be of massive societal impact if they do occur, I think people would benefit from a nuanced view of climate risk that includes both the likelihood of an outcome assigned to it by the IPCC, and also just how severe the consequences of that event would be should it happen. For example, the science on ice sheet instability feedbacks under high emission scenarios is actually still out, and if those feedback processes do occur, then they could add upwards of 15 meters to global sea level rise by the year 2300, which is in stark contrast with the approximately 0.5 to 3 meters of sea level rise expected from other IPCC warming scenarios. That's a huge deal that ought to factor into considerations of climate risk. So why are these consensus reports on climate change important? And what are they used for? Consensus reports on climate change express what we know and what we don't know about climate change and its impacts. One key distinction between a scientific literature review and a consensus assessment report is that the latter have decision makers defined in the broadest possible sense as the target audience. These reports are specifically designed to be the scientific foundations on which informed decisions can be made at all levels of government, but also throughout society. For example, there are various initiatives and laws, at least at the state and city levels, to get to around net zero emissions by 2050. 
This target was set to align with the Paris Agreement to limit temperature increase by 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which was informed by the science and IPCC reports. Because they're authoritative and trustworthy scientific documents, it's also common to see consensus reports like those of the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment cited in climate lawsuits that lean on the science. And for our work in educating judges in climate science, our team relies heavily on these kinds of report for laying out the basic, objective, scientific facts on climate change. So, you know, they're really used by everyone and for everything climate-related. Thanks, John. It's great to understand a little bit more about the origins of those net zero commitments that we see everywhere. And we can devote a whole other podcast episode on whether or not we're on track to meet those net zero commitments. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for someone who may not be a scientist, but is interested in learning more about consensus reports on climate change? Many, if not all, of these kinds of reports publish headline statements and executive summaries, which typically provide any interested readers with plain language explanations of the major takeaways. Because of their global and national importance, they're also often covered extensively by popular media. But there's also this big push to make climate science more accessible to non-scientists. And I think that the fifth national climate assessment does this really well. It has this cool atlas that has interactive maps of how climate change impacts the U.S. at the county level. So anyone, a judge or a policymaker, for example, can go into the website and see changes in things like the number of days over 100 degrees Fahrenheit under a particular emission scenario or changes in average precipitation where they live. The report also has an accompanying podcast, a webinar series for each chapter, and it's available in full as an audiobook. The USGCRP team is also in the process of translating the entire report into Spanish for the first time in an effort to increase accessibility. Thanks, John, for joining me from the CJP team to talk about scientific consensus reports. I have learned a lot today, and I look forward to our next episode together. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.